I. Hi. I'm Evan. I'm Addy. And you are listening to the Speaking English Podcast, the place to be for anyone who wants to watch more movies or read more books, but doesn't quite know where to start. Here we are once again for our first wrap-up in quite a while, if you think about it. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is kind of our flagship episode type. I know. They're always my favorites to do, too. Uh, yeah, you, you never know where we'll go with the discussion for, for yeah. these. Uh, but this is episode 173, and uh, it's wrap-up once again. Um, my week was another pretty long and intense one, but... I officially turn in my master's thesis on Monday. Uh, That was really exciting. And then I had to give like a mock presentation of it to my lab group so that they could give me some feedback. And I was really nervous about that, but it actually went really well. I got some really nice feedback. So I feel a lot better about doing the real presentation a week from today now, which is crazy. Um, But yeah, last week was like, seriously, I feel like it was my third week in a row of just like nonstop school stuff. And it was actually like the most intense. I had a huge stats exam. I had to turn in my thesis. I had to give a, I had to write like a 10 page paper for a completely unrelated thing. And then after I turned in my thesis, which was at the very beginning of the week, I was like, I can't believe I still have to do like other shit. Yeah, <laughs> like, 10 pages like, is a lot. <laughs> like nothing else feels nearly as important or pressing as that was. Yeah. But I still just had so much other stuff to do. 10 pages this- is a crazy amount for like a throwaway page. Like the only 10 pages I've written were like term papers for courses. I actually have to do that again this week for a different class. Like that's just Ridiculous. grad school. You have to write so much in grad school, which I hate writing now. I used to love to write. <laughs> I used to think I was good at writing. And since being in grad school, I no longer feel either of those things. This is scaring me as, as a prospective yeah. grad school student now. Yeah, dude, buckle up. It is a lot, a lot of writing. I, I do love a good a good paper when it's something I care about, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's kind of the whole point of grad school is that you, like, I, I don't know, at least <laughs> in my field is that you, like, become an academic, like a published academic. So you have yeah, to okay. really learn how to write. Um, yeah, you got to so write a paper, week, too. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Last week was crazy. This week is a little bit lighter. I do. Actually, it's quite a bit lighter. I have a, a big paper and presentation on Friday, but the, those are the only things. So I'm chilling. <laughs> Finally. Right. It's so good to have a little bit of a break in things. And actually, this week is DJ-a-thon at my radio station. So uh, if anyone wants to tune in to 90.5 KCSU and show some support and donate, that's kind of the whole big goal of this week is we raise like 90% of our funds in this one week. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, can yeah. you tell the folks at home where to find your radio show? Because yes. 90.5 or whatever is probably going to be hard true. to tune to across the That's world. Very true. <laughs> if you're in Fort Collins, you can just listen to 90.5 on your radio. If you're not in Fort Collins, you can watch the live stream and li- listen to it from anywhere on the website, which is just kcsufm.com. We also have an app that usually you can listen to shows on, uh, but it's currently down. So I'll keep you in the loop about when that's going <laughs> Incredible. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want to try to tune in to one of the radio shows. They're on. They're on Sunday nights. You said. Yep. 
for this semester, but I only have okay. like a couple shows left in the semester and I do not want to do Sunday nights again next okay. semester. So we'll see. <laughs> I got to say Sunday nights are pretty tricky for me to be able to tune into. Yeah. I, I've had to miss quite a few shows this semester because I'm like, Oh yeah. Like it's the weekend. I'm not, I'm somewhere else. <laughs> I got bigger fish to fry than yeah. <laughs> any damn radio show. <laughs> so yeah. How was your week? Uh, incredible news. Yeah. Uh, my week was kind of awesome. I mean, I'm not Yay! gonna lie. Like, okay, good. I I had been struggling for a little bit, but uh, mm-hmm. just going through the highlights of this week, it was it was pretty great. I saw Wise Blood live in concert. Yeah, how was that? This was one of the cooler shows I've ever been to. Her voice, like, she's the real deal. I don't know. Her voice yeah. is so incredibly beautiful. That's like so awesome. at, at certain points, it, it, it didn't feel that impressive just because it sounded like I was just listening to the record. Because that's she, crazy. Her voice is like so consistent. Um, mm. This is a show that I went to by myself, mm-hmm. uh, and I think partially because of that, I didn't have the confidence to like get up super close, like push through the crowd, sure. which maybe yeah. I should have because it's like it's, if it's just one person who's going to complain if I just. Yeah, that's true. So I was like a little far away. It was a smaller venue. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was just a magical experience. I think I I feel so much. I feel very uh, like connected to her. That's so cool. I love that. Uh, It it helped me out a lot in in kind of, you know, accepting where I'm at in in the world right now and uh, made me feel feel better about a lot of things. That's Um, amazing. I love that. Yeah, it was really cool. And uh, on this tour, she's, I, I think this is stemming from that one uh, Letterboxd interview she did. But basically, just on this tour, people just give her DVDs to watch. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, and resulting from this, someone someone sent up Mulholland Drive. And she told a story at the, at the concert about how the first time she ever got high, uh, like uh, smoking weed. Yeah. She didn't want to go home, so the people she were with, she was with were like, "Just go see a movie or something." And it was it turned the movie that she went and saw turned out to be Mulholland Drive. Oh my god, what a trip! So like, Im- imagine watching that the first time you ever got high. I would be freaked out. <laughs> I think then- I would walk out of the movie really and be like, "I haven't. I don't think that I understood like." I think I made up the entirety of the movie that I think I saw. You know what I mean? Like, I think I'd walk out and be like, there's no way that movie is actually like that. I was just mm. really high. And yeah. then I would watch it again and be like, oh my God. Like, holy. <laughs> it's just like that. Holy cow. It was really an incredible show and and uh, a very memorable concert experience. Good. That's really awesome. Um, there were no hoodies, though, unfortunately. Oh, bummer. I but saw I, that you had a really cool t-shirt, though. I did buy a very cool t-shirt, yeah. Good. Um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, that was, that was last Monday. That was a week ago today. And, uh, since then the, the week was pretty short because we had Wednesday off, which is my worst right. day of school. Um, and then on the weekend I went and did some solo adventuring. I went to some art museums. Nice. I bought some books. <laughs> um, I'm loaded up with books to read right now. It's, it's oh, good. insane. <laughs> um, so I'm very happy about that. I have I have a, a, a vision and a purpose. And I also have have seen a ton of movies 
since the month started. I decided to really commit to that and be like, okay, we're watching movies and thinking about them and writing about them from time to time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just something that I decided that I, that I, that I want to dive into at this point with my free time that I do have. Nice. Uh, so I'm really hitting the ground running and uh, I think I'll be able to keep it up. But uh, Good. That's awesome. That makes sense, especially with like applying to grad programs and stuff. Too. Yeah. I got to figure out what, what, uh, what topic I want to yeah. really commit to. And, and yeah. there's a couple, a couple in the running, but uh, I think this is just kind of the, the um, instigator to just kind of start thinking more generally more about movies and, and starting to kind of like focus more on that, which I, which I had dropped for a little bit since I've come here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm realizing that it's something that's very important to me and that I want to focus on. Uh, that That's what's been going on. Nice. So we, we posed the question last week of uh, um, what is it? Re- remakes. Mm-hmm. So there is nothing in the mailbag for this week, I got to say, <laughs> but I have thought long and hard about this one. Okay, good. I want to hear it. Um, do you, first of all, do you have any remake pitches? Oh, no, uh, you, you said last week that it was Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, it remains Nightmare on Elm Street. And also The Craft, uh, which I'm going to talk about in this wrap up. I watched it for okay. the first time this October. I'll get a little more into it with my review, but oh, I yeah, would love to remake the craft or for somebody to remake the craft. But what's yours? The craft. <laughs> okay. So I think the topic of remakes is something that I find very interesting. I think mm-hmm. people go about it completely the wrong way or like the studios or whatever, go about it completely the wrong way. Okay. Because they're always remaking the movies that are already classics. I think it's a fundamental flaw because the movies that are already classics are such because they're so good. And I talked last week about the lightning in the bottle that these mm-hmm. classic movies capture. I think what we, what everyone should really be focusing on for their remakes are the movies that aren't good. <laughs> but could be. Yeah. Specific, specifically the ones that feel like missed opportunities based on maybe like the premise is really good, but it just yeah. didn't deliver. Yeah. Um, but like, I specifically wanted to focus on film noir. Okay. Because I think just kind of this whole idea of like neo-noir revisionist stories playing off of this idea of mm-hmm. these original era film noir pictures. Um. And I, I talked kind of a little bit about this last week where it's like the ones that I really appreciate are ones that instead of remaking something, take the original text and reinterpret it into a completely new way. And I think mm-hmm. at least for noir, like all the best neo-noirs as we call them do this, but I'm specifically thinking of The Long Goodbye, mm-hmm. which takes a Raymond Chandler story, a character that... uh was so uh, lovingly by some of us played by Humphrey Bogart in uh, (laughs) the big sleep, for instance, and like reinterpreting that in in the context of of a then modern or a contemporary setting, which was like the Uh seventies in that case, or like the big Lebowski where you're taking Mm -hmm. a noir setup and then saying, you know, what if, what if our protagonist did not care at all about yeah. what was going on. 
God, I love that movie so much. Me too. That's got to be, that's one of my favorites all time. Um, so I think I was looking at it specifically in that lens. What are, what are the noir movies that weren't as good as they could have been when they originally came out that could be reinterpreted in new ways in the modern age? Mm -hmm. Um, I almost chose hangover square for this one, which is one that, uh, I found very irritating watching nearly the whole time, but the last sequence of this movie is such perfection that it redeems a lot of what came before. And I think remaking it would diminish that quality. So I think we're looking for one specifically that kind of missed the mark because they're unspectacular when they could have been spectacular. Mm-hmm. And so I fell upon for my dream remake. Mm-hmm a picture from 1945 called my name is julia ross okay so basically this one it came out after gaslight uh and it basically takes the premise of gaslight except that the instead of like being tricked into marrying this man because he's (laughs) a big fat phony faker she's literally just kidnapped and wakes up one day and is like you are this man's husband. What do you mean? You've never seen him before. Like, oh. And so, so, so the whole time she knows that things aren't right. Gaslight is interesting because you kind of, you, the audience know that, that something's amiss and you uh-huh. have to watch Ingrid Bergman struggle through not knowing that and, and like kind of starting to realize it and, and genuinely wondering if she's going crazy. Mm. My name is Julia Ross kind of skips that part <laughs> mm-hmm. and you're faced with the the main character being like, okay, these people all around me are obviously lying to me, but I, there's no way that I can prove it. And I think it, it it's relatively unspectacular, but I think with this setup, you could create a really fabulous uh, like thriller. Yeah. It sounds really interesting, really suspenseful. Um, and so for me, I think it's it's an unspectacular picture that could be remade into something very, very interesting. So that mm. is my answer. After a long and hard uh, brainstorm <laughs> session about this. That is a great answer. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a list on Letterboxd of, of noir movies. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm realizing the ones that aren't very good are so forgettable to the point where it's like, what even happened in this movie? Yeah. <laughs> Cause yeah. I, I think a lot of the plotting follows the similar grounds and what's totally. so special is kind of drawn out of the characters. Mm-hmm. And so that is one that stood out to me, even though it wasn't very good. So gotcha. That's my so. answer for now. <laughs> a very cool concept. I realized I talked a lot for that one, but the, <laughs> There's something, no, no. something, something that I really wrestled with. I was like, I got to come up with a really good answer for this. And I'm glad that you did. Thank you for doing that. So, yeah. And and uh, this movie is only about, it, it's only 65 minutes long. It's a really quick mm. watch. So everyone should go check out My Name is Julia Ross. For yeah, the remake, I would cut out the first part and just call it Julia Ross. Nice. For the record. I hope you make it someday. That would be so cool. <laughs> Maybe I will. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, cool. So let's, let's jump into it. I think we're gonna have a lot to talk about for wrap up. 
Yeah, I think so too. So uh, did you have any books you wanted to talk about for this month? Yeah, I read one book this October, which I'm kind of impressed with myself about because it was a very busy month. Okay. I read Camilla and I can't remember who it's by. I'm going to look it up real quick. And also the year that it came out because it's really old. Really old. It's by Sheridan Lafano. And it came out in 1872. Wow. And it's a gothic novel and it's one of the original vampire stories and that's Ooh. why i wanted to read it this october um it is about a vampire named carmilla who you just watch her liver vampire life basically she it's narrated by a, a young woman around carmilla's age or supposedly carmilla's age you know she's a vampire so she's immortal <laughs> <laughs> um, Word. But the age of Carmilla presents that. And this girl lives a very dull, dreary life uh, on like a gigantic estate. I feel like every time I read like a gothic novel, there's characters who live on these massive estates and they do nothing. All I'm like, how many people were actually living this life back in the 1800s? Like, why? Yeah. How do you all have gigantic houses and no jobs? And you just hang out in a giant house all day. Like, I truly can't comprehend how this came to be for so many people. But this heroine of this tale is another one just like that. So she's bored out of her mind on her giant estate. And then one day, a carriage crashes in front of her home with a mom and a daughter. And the the daughter's passed out. And the mom is like... I have to continue on my three month journey. It's urgent and I cannot take my daughter. Can she live with you guys? And they're like, That's of course. Crazy. Of course she can. Um, and the daughter is just the most beautiful person that anyone's ever seen. And Laura, the narrator of the book, is so excited about her because she finally has a best friend. And then their relationship just gets weirder and weirder as the book goes on. This is Carmilla, clearly, who's living with them. Okay. Carmilla is odd and obsessive and alluring. And she just gets under everybody's skin. And she is... She, it reads like she is in love with this girl who's narrating the book uh, as much as she can be. Like, I think if this was rewritten today, it'd be a lot more explicit and graphic in their relationship. But it, this was written in 1900. She can't just like be a lesbian, <laughs> obviously. Not allowed. <laughs> can't get away with that. <laughs> uh, but like as much as the book can convince you that that's what's going on, it does, I would say. And um it was just so fun to read. And then later in the book, you find out actually she's a vampire. Maybe she's not so in love with Laura. Maybe she <laughs> wants to eat her. <laughs> Maybe she wants to suck her blood. Yeah. Um, there's kind of a mystery around it, around who is Carmilla, you know, how long has she been alive, whatever. Um, I would say in modern times, the mystery is never actually mysterious. It's very clear from the get-go what is going on. Uh, but I don't know if that was true when it like first came out. But nonetheless, I loved it. It's such a easy read for how old it is for like the language that it's written in. Okay. And it's just like enthralling. I don't know. And I just I can't believe it was written as long ago as it was. It feels very modern. Um it's clear that it was like such a trailblazer in this type of gothic romance, I guess. Very cool. Yeah, I loved it. 
I'm not going to lie. This plotting sounds very similar to the first part of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which is hmm. a manga slash anime series. Interesting. Uh, that's told in a number of parts, focusing on different protagonists each time. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'm pretty sure that that the first part of JoJo's was inspired by this story because too too much of it lines up. I'll that's so that interesting. Way. But uh, yeah, sounds super cool. It was so cool. I highly recommend. Who doesn't love a good vampire tale? Seriously. Awesome. I also read one book this month. Nice. It was called Ship of Fools by Catherine Ann Porter. Cool. Uh, So this is the first book that I bought since being here. And uh, I read it over the course of my first couple months here, I guess. (laughs) I guess I didn't finish it until the beginning of October, but I think I read most of it across September. Uh, But basically, this is a bit of an ensemble piece dealing with a number of different characters uh, that are all on a ship. It's not really a cruise ship. I don't know why I keep wanting to call it a cruise ship, but like, that's not, it's sailing from Mexico to Germany. Okay. And it deals with all sorts of, and this is in the thirties, the, the interwar period. Mm -hmm. Um. And it deals with a cast of characters from various places, whether it be like America, Germany, uh, France, just and and kind of how they interact. Um, And I actually really liked it. I thought it was super interesting and kind of concerning at some points. I think, (laughs) let's see, when did this come out? I think it was in the 40s or so. Basically, every character, you get a pretty good sense. Yeah, originally written in in, uh, 45 so like at that close of of world war ii Uh, but you kind of get the sense with each character you you get their like innermost perspective Um, and most of the people on this boat that we get to see it to have some some pretty glaring flaws Uh, but where the book does quite well is still being able to humanize these people for, for the most part there are some that are pretty despicable characters that you just don't even want anything to do with uh but for, for most of them you human they humanize them uh to the point where it's like you can kind of be in their shoes while still disagreeing with a lot of a lot of the ideas present interesting um so it, yeah it, it was a really interesting read um I think by the end of the book, it's pretty clear who the most important or central characters are. And it's it's a little surprising who those people turn out to be. Um, but I think with, with certain characters, there, there was a lot of profound things being said that connected with me uh, more so than others. Mm-hmm. But uh, overall, it was, it was really cool. I uh, Reading it the whole time, I kept thinking about how interesting of a picture it would make something very similar to nashville Mm. where it's like you really get the sense of the time period based on different people's attitudes and and persuasions of that time right which i think is very much the case in nashville and and, and it feels similar to this one um although this one's being pulled in hindsight with the context of, of world war ii following it so there's um and I guess a point that I would have about it is I'm not sure how how rampant 
I can't say one way or another, I guess, how rampant the anti-Semitism would have been in Germany at the time. This is like set um, at some point in the 30s. Okay. Maybe a little bit before. I don't know if like, I think this would would have been, oh yeah, 31. So this is uh, Mm pre-Hitler in Germany setting. So I guess, I don't know if it's like a hindsight thing of like, yeah, this is what it turned into, or if it really was this bad at this point. Um, that the book was written, but uh, that's something that really stood out because there, there's there's long sections that are are dealing with kind of these issues, um, which I think are definitely super relevant. Um, and yeah, it, it poses the interesting question of like how accurate it is, and I don't want to say like whether it is or isn't. Okay. Um, like that's that's not necessarily a critique. It's just something that I wonder about having read it. But uh, overall, I really like this one. I give it a, a, the the big four out of five, and I'm glad that I read it. <laughs> nice. So that was the book that I read. I picked up on quite a number of books this weekend that I'm excited to to get reading to. So I, I'm hoping to have some more by the end of November that are that are read. Awesome. Cool. So let's get into some movies. Okay. Do you, would you like to go first for this one? Okay, I think the first movie I watched this month was Fern Gully, <laughs> The Last Rainforest. Have you ever seen this? Probably when I was very little, but not to yeah. the point that I remember. Yeah, Fern Gully is a little like cartoon from the 90s that um, I watched because at the very beginning of this month, I went to a birthday party for one of my cousins and they had just, they were talking about how they had just watched Fern Gully and my little cousin loved it. And her mom who was like a real nineties kid was like, Fern Gully was the best movie that ever happened ever. And I watched it every single day when I was a child on VCR. And I was like, (laughs) I was like, okay, I have to watch it. I've never even heard of it. Um, It does not hold up for people. (laughs) (laughs) Watch it as a kid. It's like not very good. It is funny and like cute there's a really adorable dance number it's about fairies i guess i should have said that it's about a guy who is like a lumberjack type of person he's cutting down trees in this fairy utopia and then this one magical girl fairy accidentally shrinks him so then he gets to walk around the fairyland and kind of see the forest through their eyes and then he learns to not cut down trees it's really the gist incredible um a good moral we can all get behind. Yes. It's so painfully 90s. It's so funny. <laughs> when the guy gets shrunken down and meets the fairy for the first time, he calls her a bodacious babe. <laughs> it was so cute. <laughs> I loved it. There's some great musical numbers. The humor is just hilarious. But all in all, I feel the exact same way about this movie that I did about The Road to El Dorado when I rewatched that. <laughs> fairly recently which is just like it feels like this movie was made by children like for children like obviously there were there must have been adults involved in the making of this movie but it just doesn't feel that way like I don't know and I love the Rotel Dorado because I have such nostalgic memories of that one watching it as a kid but I made Adam watch it with me and he never saw it as a kid and he was like this movie is a mess like there's no plot it is not trying to say anything and that's how I felt watching Fern Gully I was like mm. what uh, this is not a story. <laughs> <laughs> a couple random animated scenes. 
And that's okay. I think I gave it a six out of 10. I'm glad I watched it. It was fun. Um, but it's just kind of funny the way that it feels like child movie makers, like animated filmmakers for a long time could really just get away with like not having a plot mm. <laughs> for the movie. As long as it was fun and animated, that was good enough. <laughs> it's nonsensical. Word. Uh, the first movie. Oh, so I guess I have nine because one of the ones I included was Cria Cuervos, nice, which we did talk about. But uh, the first one I have to, that I have to talk about is another Spanish movie called Viridiana, directed by one Luis Buñuel, who is a, a a big name as far as surrealism goes. This is actually one that I saw at a movie theater in Spanish with no subtitles. Whoa. It was crazy. I uh, I got most of it, but I feel like there might have been something missing from like, uh, there is a couple lines that felt like zingers, but I didn't quite know why they were zingers, <laughs> <laughs> including like the last one of the picture. I was like, that's got to be something. I, I, I vaguely understood what he meant mm-hmm. by it, mm-hmm. um, but like it didn't quite line up. What a what a wild movie. This is so I, I've seen a few by Buñuel, um, mm-hmm. who was a Spanish feller, um, who made a lot of his movies in French, but this is one of the Spanish ones. Hmm, interesting. Uh dealing with a nun who is about to be like confirmed into nunhood. I don't know, like <laughs> like I, I I don't know what the term is for this, but like about to become a real nun. Uh, and she visits her uncle, who's like kind of creepy, but then he dies and she just has to like live there for a while. Mm-hmm. And she's really nice to the homeless people of the area. And they kind of just live at the big estate that the, the dead uncle used to own. Gotcha. Um, and it makes a lot of commentary about the nature of humanity and uh, how overly pious uh, leanings might not always be the best or might be like hypocritical or those sort of sorts of things. It was a very interesting watch. And there was a lot of like imagery and symbolism that stood out to the point where it, it didn't matter too much. Like I, I didn't feel like I missed out on, on a lot by not understanding some of it. Mm-hmm. I, I got a good amount. Um, and I'm finding it's a lot easier for me when I'm listening to Spanish with Spanish subtitles. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. I get a lot more out of it than um, without the subtitles because everyone speaks so fast. I don't have time yeah. to catch up. <laughs> uh, but with this one, a lot of the imagery spoke for itself, and there were a number of scenes that, that really kind of stood out. Very um, cool. I think there's some of it that I might have missed out on, like not being able to understand it completely. Mm-hmm. But I think overall, it, it was quite a nice experience. I'm glad I went and saw it uh, in a theater. And uh, now I've seen it. Nice. I gave it a solid 8 out of 10 for Vididiana. Cool. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll probably try to rewatch it at some point. A lot of people consider this one like a masterpiece or his best movie. Oh, cool. Um, which... Is, is interesting because I think there's a lot of good there, but but some stuff that didn't quite uh, connect with me either. Next one that I watched was called Freaks by Todd Browning. This is one that I think has built up quite a reputation. Um, it, it deals with uh, the circus and specifically details 
Um, the, the, uh, previously unseen on film depictions of like people with disabilities that are part of the freak show at a carnival. And I think yeah. that it, that it humanizes them in a way that I think this is billed as a horror movie normally, but, but it's, it's not quite that. Okay. Um, and I think it does a good job about telling a compelling, well, the drama isn't what the appeal of this is. It, it's kind of the humanity of treating people like people. And I think that, um, although it's like fairly basic in its messaging, it does a really good job at like being very earnest with what it's doing. Okay. Um, and I think specific flights of fancy are a little bit excusable because I think it has such a good message at its heart. Um, and I think is able to be a very earnest depiction and uh, just kind of a nice watch. Um, nice. Overall, eight out of 10. It's actually, I'm looking at it now, the runtime, and it's quite a short one as well. A fairly simple story. Um, but uh, I don't think I, I was ever rolling my eyes either. So, yeah. Gotcha. Eight out of 10 for me for freaks. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. The next movie I watch. So, I've talked about this before, but my local movie theater that I love to go to and like go to a lot does a monthly retrospective where they pick a theme and then Mm. every week on Thursday, they show an older release that fits the theme and October's theme was witches. I could not have excited about the theme. Unfortunately, I only got to see two of the four that they showed. Um, And the first one was the witches of Eastwick. Mm. I loved this movie. I feel like I saw on Letterboxd that you didn't like it. Yeah. You gave me two stars. I liked it. (laughs) I thought it was so funny, but I, to be fair, I went into this movie just knowing that I would love it and knowing it would be ridiculous. First of all, this movie is about three best friends, one of whom is Cher, (laughs) my icon. (laughs) I love Cher. Um, And they're like kind of, they're like subtly witches. Like they don't really know that they're witches, but they're all single ladies in this town. And one stormy night, they accidentally manifest their collective dream man. And their dream man is Jack Nicholson, and he's the literal devil. The devil, yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. I, I wrote this. like It's like I manifested this movie from my own subconscious mind. It could not be more perfect for me. So anyway, Jack Nicholson, the devil, comes into town, successfully seduces all three of these women, and they just kind of roll with it because he's able to grant them more witch powers. Like they find more of their magic and their friendship through his um, uh, like presence in their lives, his diabolical presence in their lives and like what he kind of puts them through. And I just like, I just think it's perfect. Which movies should be about witches having fun together? <laughs> Getting into wacky shenanigans and hexing men. And I hate it when witch movies are not like that. This one does it so well. It's so funny. It's so campy. I like just genuinely from the bottom of my heart loved it. I gave it an 8 out of 10. And that's a very sincere rating. From That's not an ironic rating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to watch it every October. I think it's incredible. Incredible. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of this one, but it has admittedly been a while since I watched it. Mm. Um, yeah, I think you have to just go in like. I still wouldn't. I don't think I'll. I don't think I'll rewatch it and and uh, yeah. 
changed my opinion vastly, but right. I, I probably wouldn't give it a four <laughs> <laughs> on, so, on the rewatch. It's so good. I just like, I, I love stories where like the women become more empowered and more liberated throughout rather than, I, I don't know, like falling victim or ruining their friendship over this sort of like power that's introduced or a man that's introduced. This movie does that so fantastically. At the end of the movie, it is just about like the companionship of these three women okay. and each of their independence. And I love that. And I'm going to talk about the craft on my next turn and why <laughs> it does that and why it sucks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, the next one that I watched is uh, a little picture called French Can Can by Jean Renoir, my favorite, my favorite man. <laughs> Quickly becoming one of my favorite. Well, he probably is at this point one of my favorite directors. Uh, but I did mention how I've been trying to watch more Renoir pictures because yeah. I think something about the way that he makes a movie is is so nice. Uh, nice. This one's a musical. It's from 1955, so he's he's in France at this point. It's a French studio musical, <laughs> which is notable for me because, like, it, it it has a very different feel to like the big Hollywood music 50s musicals that were being made uh, at this point. And I can't place what is different about it, like the 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 colors are different like i i don't know if it's on technicolor or not but the film stock just looks different uh that's refreshing in some ways um but maybe not as spectacular i don't know this was a super fun one it's about moulin rouge and, and it's kind of like a fictional uh account of its creation uh featuring jean gibbon who is big deal French actor. He's in a couple of other Renoir pictures that I've seen and does incredible, but this is a much more lighthearted role compared to what I've seen him in previously. Mm-hmm. He's just a, he's just a, 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 a dancey kind of dude. He has lots of affairs with various women and lives for the arts. He's just trying to, you know, make his theater, I guess. <laughs> Um, and, and there's a big theme about this kind of free spirit in nature about living for the arts that I think has its heart in the right place in this one for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just about dancing and, and making a theater. It's pretty uh, lighthearted. It, cool. it goes into like some melodramatic places and I think detours in some areas that aren't quite the... Uh, aren't that great maybe i don't know but uh, i think overall it's just such a fun i just had such a fun time watching this uh and it, and it stands out to me as uh different as being like a big kind of musical of this time that has quite a different feel to it compared to to some other stuff so gotcha overall it's a seven out of ten for me for french can can but uh quite a fun watch very cool uh, the next one I watched was Joan of Arc from 1900. So I've mentioned before that I've been trying this year to watch a movie from every decade from the 20s to the 20s, 
But I realized that if I'm trying to become a very, a, a real film scholar, film critic, that I gotta, I gotta expand my scope a little bit, especially, <laughs> especially the 19 teens. I think there's a lot of, cause I, I kind of start my, my area in the twenties because I think that's when, when movies were really kind of ha- had become what movies are now, I guess <laughs> like the feature film format was fully in place. Uh, but I think a lot of the earlier stuff also is probably interesting because it's more pioneering. So I'm trying to expand my, my lens, cast my net wider into some of these, these early cinema type stuff. Uh, so Joan of Arc is from 1900 directed by George Melies, this French guy who is gotta be the coolest pioneer of early cinema he's he's the man uh, a lot of people are familiar with trip to the moon which is his most famous work um also popularized i think uh martin scorsese is a huge fan of george Melies, um oh, cool. and he's done a, a whole lot to bring um recognition to him including hugo the picture which is basically about george Melies. <laughs> um but uh, this one is uh, less fantastical as some of his other stuff, but still for how early it was, right at the turn of the, the century, uh, does a lot of cool stuff. I don't think I have too much more to say about it. It's only 11 minutes long, so I think everyone should just go check it out nice. and uh, see. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it wasn't really until the, the mid-19-teens where we got features Okay, gotcha. Um, because you wouldn't really go more than one reel, which is about 15 to 20 minutes um, before that point. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. But uh, I don't have a whole lot to say about Joan of Arc. And, and there was a, a more interesting Melies picture that I saw earlier this month that I'll talk about uh, at the end of it. So. Cool. I'm dying to talk about the freaking craft. The craft. (laughs) Okay, so the craft was the second witch movie that they showed at the Lyric this month. And I have been wanting to see the craft for years and years and years. It is such a cult classic for people who like witch movies, which is myself. Um, And it's always the craft, if you don't know, is about these four teenage girls in high school who uh, become friends and sort of realize that they have witch powers and they like they're learning about the craft together. And the, and they do arts and crafts together. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they're little, little weirdos and they just get witchier and witchier. And yeah. It looks really, it looks really fun. And I was so excited to see mm-hmm. it and people love it. And people on letterbox like herald it as this like feminist masterpiece that was like ahead of its time. Okay. So I was like, I went into this, like, this is going to be a five-star film for me. I'm so excited. I get to see it in the theater. Um, the first half of the craft is absolutely flawless. I think that people okay. who love the craft maybe have only seen half. <laughs> <laughs> I would understand. Halfway through, I was like, this is a five-star movie. I love this. The whole first half is just these four girls getting to know each other and seeing how much they can push their powers and like encourage each other to push their powers and stuff. And you get to watch them 
like learn and try things and like the magic and the spells that they do is so cool and interesting. And I learned um, from a podcast later on that they had like an actual like team of witch consultants (laughs) on this film. And they were like asking like, like people who are in this spiritual sphere, like, what do you actually do? What do you read? What do you say? So a lot of what you see them actually practice is like so authentic and it really comes off that way. And that is so interesting. Um, and they're like little teenage friendship that's like paralleling this like very traditional spirituality is so good. Like the juxtaposition of those two things is just so fun. And then it just goes off the rails, dude. Conflict <laughs> <laughs> is introduced. Oh my God. Oh You're totally just like made to believe halfway through the movie that three of three of the four girls are actually like irreparably evil, like just beyond, like they have no redeeming qualities. The magic is introduced and suddenly they are just the scum of the earth and they need to die. And only one of the girls in this circle is like a good person, despite also being a witch and their friendship falls apart and they nearly kill each other. And the other three girls are like, literally the the one witch who's the good witch is like, oh my God, they're all just crazy. They're using their powers for bad. But one of the other girls in the circle, like literally was a burn victim. And the only magic she does, the whole movie is just healing her scars. And then halfway through the good witch is like, she's so vain. <laughs> she needs to die. <laughs> and good what are you talking about? And they are never redeemed. The whole second half of the movie is just this epic fight between the good witch versus the three bad witches. And then like the movie ends and they're just still bad. They don't even have their powers anymore, but they're just crazy and selfish. And the one who's like the the main baddie, the big bad baddie, she is very poor and her home situation is very abusive. And she gets a little too obsessed with power because she's never had any sort of safety or empowerment in her life at all. It makes a lot of sense why she goes a little power crazy. And then they take her powers away from her and she gets like locked up in a loony bin. And that's how the movie ends. And it like the lights come on in the in the movie and Adam looks over at me and he's like, was the moral of that story that poor people are bad? <laughs> I was like, I kind of think that's what I was trying to say. That's ridiculous. And like, it was another one of these movies for me uh, where you get, you watch the first half and it's all about girls and girlhood. And you're yeah. like, clearly this movie's written by a woman. You know, they're really commenting a lot on the nature of girls. And then you get halfway through and you have have this heart sinking realization. It's just like, oh, no woman would ever write these female characters to do these things Mm -hmm. to each other. And then you get out of the movie and you look it up on Letterboxd and it was written and directed by men. Stay out of women's business (laughs) if you're going to do it like this. It made me so mad. So I really would like for somebody to remake the craft now exact same first half just do that the same completely different second half just mm-hmm. take the story in the opposite direction because this movie just oh my god it rose so high and then it fell so hard and it truly could not be less feminist and i i am actually bewildered by anybody who is of that opinion i think it's because in the first half it's four girls just being themselves being little weirdos mm-hmm. We'd love to see it. 
But at the end of the day, uh, it says some pretty bad things about like three out of four women. <laughs> three out of four women are actually irredeemable. Three out of four women. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. So, I hated it. I gave it a four out of ten. <laughs> Something about what you said that reminded me of your your take on the, the worst person in the world. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it felt a lot like that. Uh, my next one is my f- only my fourth 10 out of 10 first watch of the year, which uh, we're getting pretty late in the year. So who knows if there'll even be another one. Whoa. Uh, this is another banger out of Great Britain from Emmerich Pressburger and Michael Powell, directors of The Red Shoes, which we both loved. Um, this one's called A Matter of Life and Death. I love this movie. Okay, so let me let me just start out by saying it's not as good as the red shoes. <laughs> I still think that that's their their like masterpiece or whatever. A matter of life and death is such a curious and interesting picture that I can't help but love it. The cold open of this is so beautiful as far as like what it does to like build the humanity of the piece and just kind of be so genuine. Uh, basically, it, it deals with a fighter pilot in World War II. This is uh, from 1946, so mm-hmm. it's it's very much tied in, uh, mm-hmm. much like Ship of Fools, the book that I read. It, it well, actually, in, in a in a different way, but uh, it's tied in with like the World War II experience and is uh, specifically kind of about like th- this post war idea. Um, but the the cold open features a pilot. Who is radioing, radioing into like home base or whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone else has bailed out of the plane or has died. It's just him. He's got no parachute. He gave his parachute away to the last person. He knows he's gonna die, and he just wants to have like a, a, a genuine, uh, like talk conversation with whoever is at the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a, such a such a poignant opening that I think works so well and is and feels so genuine that I can't help but like be on board right from the get-go. It's so well done. I think honestly that might be the best part of this movie. Like the the most kind of um like hard hitting part of this movie is just the way that it that it that it starts, which I think is incredible. Uh basically the the pilot gets lost on his way to the afterlife and ends up surviving this and he runs into the 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 person that he's talking to is, is a lady operator of the switch of the telephone line. He ends up meeting her and they fall in love and meet immediately, of course. So he had accepted his death originally, but now that he survived and has found love, he no longer wants to die. Up upstairs, you know, they realize they made a mistake. They got they're like, oh well, this guy should have died and he didn't. We gotta bring him back so they go to do that and he's like well i was okay with it at the time but things have changed now and that's the conflict except it's simultaneously played out is uh all happening within his head mm-hmm. so you have the doctor uh who's, who's an important character uh enlisted to help him out with his with his very specific and unique brain problem uh, that hasn't been seen before. While yeah. at the same time, you're dealing with these cosmic forces that are 
are trying to settle this account. This is complicated. I don't know how complicated it is. I just felt the need to explain the plot because I think the way that it that it traverses this terrain is so well done in a way that I wish more movies were like this today where it is kind of dealing with the ridiculous in such an earnest and straightforward way, kind of without irony mm-hmm. that just make, at least made me feel like I, I can't help, but kind of buy into this. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the production design and kind of this, this setting they make of like the in-between afterlifey area is so well done. Also uh, there's like a famous uh, set of like the stairway to heaven where they're just kind of chilling out. Basically, the the guy that should have died frequently lapses into like this in-betweeny world where he's told that he he had the third act of this movie is basically a courtroom drama where he has to plead his case of why he should continue to live. Huh. But it's a heavenly courtroom drama. <laughs> but the way that it's handled just feels so honest and earnest that I can't help but buying into it, even though some of it is like very over the top. Gotcha. And you just don't really see that a lot in movies. I find mm-hmm. where the, the filmmakers are recognizing the ridiculousness of the premise and embracing it as ridiculous without being ironic or diminishing the, the, the capability for it to be emotional and, uh, and honest. And I think that's something that this strikes the, the perfect balance with, which is why I ended up giving it a 10 out of 10 is because I think that it, it, it does such a good job about towing that line that I can't help, but like buy into it. I don't know. It's, it's a 10 out of 10 for me. Nice. That's a matter of life and death. And I, I honestly just really love anything that deals with these, these, uh, concepts of like dying there's such a a fun theme to tackle and i think this one does a great job about it there are certain things in the third act that get a little bit propagandistic and caught up in in the world war ii era which is something that that i i find excusable in a lot of movies that are made right in the wake of world war ii for whatever reason i'm like okay well whatever y'all earned it i guess i don't know like it's it's hard for us like modern day to grasp like the gravity of the situation of just coming out of such a big conflict, I think. Sure. Um, but I find myself excusing that, that sort of thing. And I think that uh, a matter of life and death is just such a cool, such a cool movie. I'm so glad that it exists. And, and I'm, I'm really loving Powell and Pressburger more and more, the more I see from them. Oh, that's awesome. Aside from Hitchcock, who made most of his work in the Hollywood system, most of his best work in the Hollywood system, I got to say that Powell and Pressburger are probably my favorite uh, British directors. <laughs> nice. Uh, the next one I watched is called Lynch slash Oz, which I mistakenly thought was a feature documentary. Mm. It's less so and more just... A, six different video essays, like 20 minute long video essays, kind of dealing vaguely with the topics of the wizard of Oz and the filmography of David Lynch. Not quite what I expected, but still such a cool watch. I don't know. This might've been the, uh, the stepping off point for my recent, uh, 
um, movie watching frenzy, I guess. Because after watching this, I, I felt so uh, so much more excited about just watching movies and finding the way that they connect and intersect and and, and different things um, influence others. Nice. Which is something that I've always been interested interested in, but sometimes uh, am more or less kind of all in on, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this one was super fun. This wasn't specifically just about David Lynch. It was more how the influence of the Wizard of Oz and like this story archetype kind of filters its way throughout Hollywood's history. Yeah. But it would always kind of come back to, to David Lynch. Um, cool. it, it was just a fun, a very fun viewing. Um, but different from what I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting, but but uh, but it was quite different from whatever that would have been. <laughs> uh, but I would recommend it. It, it, it uh, premiered on the Criterion channel recently, which is what prompted me. Because I had seen like the trailer originally for it. Mm. Um, a very fun watch. But uh, don't mistake it for a feature documentary because it's it's not quite that. <laughs> gotcha. Cool. Um, I watched a movie called Killer Clowns of Outer from Outer Space this month. Have you heard of this? I've heard of this. I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah. It is a very very campy horror. It doesn't get any campier than this. People, no, the tagline. <laughs> you know how. On Letterboxd, it's like the movie and the poster, and it's got like a little tagline that I, uh, I think Letterboxd comes up with. Like, I don't even think they're real. The tagline depends. for this. Okay. Yeah. The, <laughs> the tagline for this movie on Letterboxd is just, it's crazy. <laughs> a couple A's. All right. All right. <laughs> and it is. <laughs> it is crazy. <laughs> Um, it's very, very funny. I understand. It's so, so low budget and maybe even just unscripted. I don't know. It really <laughs> feels like it's kind of just improvised. And it is literally about killer clowns that come here from outer space. And the they weren't clown, lying. Yeah. <laughs> the clown humor of it is so funny to me. There are so many scenes where you see so many of the killer clowns like all get out of a tiny car. <laughs> Just like throw pies at people. <laughs> I love that. I love the concept that there would be these like man eating aliens, but they're actually just clowns. <laughs> just very earth-like clowns. There's nothing different about them. <laughs> so how they look. Um, it's so funny. I don't think I could rate it because it's just ridiculous. But if you're a person who loves like, a campy horror, an endlessly quotable horror comedy. You must watch this one, and you probably have already. I feel like if you are that type of person, you've seen this. Um, mm. But in case you haven't and you haven't heard of it, it's hilarious. I wish I had watched it in high school. It's so like akin to like a Sharknado type of vibe. Okay. I, I got you. <laughs> um, a good if my group had watched this in high school, it would have absolutely been. Uh, something of a personality trait for all of us, I think. Mm -hmm. It's one of those. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Killer clowns from outer space. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the next movie I watched is called Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I got to admit, this is the first time I've used Disney Plus. 
So, <laughs> so I, I've been a long time uh, ESPN Plus subscriber to okay. watch football games from Germany and Spain. Nice. which have always been the two leagues that I've cared about. And they're both broadcasted by ESPN plus. Gotcha. So I also had been using a friend's Hulu account for a while that I was eventually like locked out of. And I said, <laughs> you know what? I think it's time to grow up and, and have my own Hulu account. <laughs> and so I bought the the bundle where you get ESPN plus Hulu and Disney Plus all together for like $15 a month, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's great. Which I was paying 11 for ESPN anyways, or 10 or so. Yeah. I don't know. They keep raising it. But uh, uh, so I've been using Hulu and ESPN for quite a while. But I don't think I had used Disney Plus until this. But Who Framed Roger Rabbit is featured there. <laughs> this movie is so cool. It's about cartoon. It's like a, a noir spoof. Oh, I, I need to add this to my noir list. That's the one I forgot about. So who framed Roger Rabbit? It's, the setup is basically that it's like Chinatown. Except instead of Chinatown, it's Toontown, where all the cartoons just live. That's so, so funny. I, yeah. did, I like know of this movie, but I, I'm realizing right now I have no idea what it's about. That's <laughs> Yeah, so it's pre actually pretty groundbreaking as far as the way that it merges 2D animation and live action. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there are definitely, like, you can see the seams, but that doesn't make it any less impressive how they're just able to, like, integrate both into the story. Okay. Um, in, like, production levels and also just, like, thematically into the story. I think does it super well of like building up this idea. Basically the concept is that cartoons are shot just like live action movies are and the cartoon actors just act in them. That's so funny. <laughs> and they go through all this like crazy stuff. So Roger Rabbit is, is known for just beating himself up <laughs> on camera. And like, that's, that's the cold open of this one is like an animated short. And then at the end of it, he messes something up and they cut and you see the whole production apparatus. And it's like, man, you messed up this take again. And he's just a cartoon that's existing in the real world. So I it's so fun. Yeah, exactly. It's so fun how they play with these ideas throughout of like, ah, uh, the tunes. <laughs> Um, and it deals with some of these, some of these, um, I don't know, it, it brings up some fun little themes about uh, the difference between it. But the, yeah, it, it definitely kind of is, is a noir spoof with that kind of setup. That is so funny. I really want to watch it now. Yeah. And Christopher Lloyd is the villain who is an all-timer for me, one of my favorite actors. Also, this is where a sample from an MF Doom song that I really like <laughs> is oh, from. Cool. And I, when I heard it, I was like, wait a second. It was, it was like the meme with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he's just pointing at the TV. <laughs> I was like, I know this one. What song is it? Uh, it's called That's That. Oh. There's like an ending skit that's pulled straight from this movie. That is so funny. Because the the antagonist is called Judge Doom. Nice, <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I really liked it, and I think it it's very creative. 
Um, and I think uh, a big deal with this one that I really appreciated it was that it kind of is is bringing in these new technologies and is able to to um, you know showcase the, the the abilities of these technologies to be able to like merge two D with live action in, in a satisfying way. But the way that it incorporated it into the story was a way that made it feel not forced and, and supernatural for the story that they were trying to tell. It worked together super well. And that was something that I really appreciated because it wasn't just kind of pushing, pushing the envelope for its own sake. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was in a way, but it watching the movie, it worked all together doing that. It wasn't just like, okay, yeah, we made this technical advancement, but like, what does the picture actually give you? Mm-hmm. the way that it's incorporated into the story and the jokes in this one is very satisfying and i really liked it so eight out of ten for me oh i'm gonna watch that that sounds really fun yeah and it's on disney plus so <laughs> and just the way that it that, that it was able to get the rights to use a lot of like very uh famous characters from both disney and warner brothers like looney tunes type stuff was funny. There's a, there's this random sequence where Donald Duck and Daffy Duck are both playing the piano together. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, and it ends in someone shooting a cannon at the other. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then on Halloween, I rewatched Under the Silver Lake, which is one of my favorites. Oh, nice. And we've talked about it a number of times here on the pod. But uh, it's one that I've uh, been wanting to actually rewatch for a while. And uh, Halloween. I usually watch if I don't do anything else like important on Halloween. I'm like, let's watch a movie. <laughs> and uh, Under the Silver Lake gets a little spooky in some of the scenes. I know. Although I will mention that this viewing, I wasn't scared watching it for whatever reason. <laughs> nice. Previous viewings, I had been, but this one, I, I was, I was less. Uh, also, the, the, the scary scenes went on, weren't as extensive as I had remembered them, I guess. But uh, this is one that, that's so dense that there's always new stuff that you notice each time around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had been, I had been not, not a uh, hater on the theory that Sam is the dog killer. Mm-hmm. But on this viewing, there's a lot of evidence that points that way. And, and I'm more on board with that kind of interpretation. Gotcha. I don't know like if I'd go that far, but like I, I see the hints that are that are definitely there pointing gotcha. that way. Um, but yeah, there's always I think th- this is one that th- there's so much there that there's always new stuff to notice. Uh while being such a fun time. Yeah. At the same time. Um, and there is there's a, a a point that I wanted to make with this one is that there's a lot of nods to like classic Hollywood in this one that aren't super in your face either. Mm-hmm. So being a, a big fan of film history and being able to like see these references that are woven in quite masterfully, in my opinion, is super satisfying to watch, um, especially like including the soundtrack. The soundtrack for this one is like straight out of, uh, like straight straight from Bernard Herrmann's playbook, maybe. <laughs> it's something like Vertigo from Hitchcock. That's um, so cool. But yeah, I love this movie. 
nine out of 10 for me because there's like a little bit iffiness, but it, it, it's definitely like one of my favorites for Under the Silver Lake. And uh, yeah, such a fun rewatch. I think I'll never get tired of watching this one. Nice. I watched Zombie Land for the first time ever <laughs> this month. Really? Um, that's, wait, that's surprising me. I thought you had, I, I, I thought we had talked about Zombieland before. I have a weird connection to Zombieland because my cousin's godfather wrote that movie. Huh. Like one of my uncle's best friends from high school wrote Zombieland and Deadpool. He's Paul Warnick. He's famous. <laughs> He's famous. <laughs> the Zach name has- drop. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe I have seen Zombieland a-, a while ago, or at least part of it, because it's so like important to my family because it was my Paul Wernick but I definitely didn't remember it if I have seen it um so Adam and I watched it a couple nights ago and uh I hate to say this because it's written by a family friend but (laughs) I do not like that movie (laughs) it does not hold up really Uh, I feel like I might have liked it when I was younger I probably did I'm sure I thought it was funny um it just like is such a product of its time. It's like kind of painful. The humor is still fine. And like, I don't know, the concept, the killing of the zombies, also pretty fun. I like the whole just sort of like, I don't know, this goofy ragtag team okay. has all these scenes where they're like really killing a lot of zombies in like a very badass nature, you know? Like I the like the rules for surviving. Yeah, yeah. Sure, the rules. Yeah. Um, but like the romance tropes of this movie are just so painful to me to watch. <laughs> like it is just quintessential, obnoxious, nerdy, annoying guy is like, <laughs> gets the really hot girl. It's Emma Stone. <laughs> Come on. And like Emma Stone's character too is just How dare a nerdy guy get the hot girl in the movie? It's not just that he's nerdy, it's that he's annoying. He's really <laughs> annoying. He's, he's the, so the Jesse Eisenberg type. Yes. <laughs> he's so irritating to watch. And Emma Stone's character is just so flat too. Like she's just this. I don't know, caricature of a woman who like can't stay, can't commit, can't mm. be in a relationship. There's absolutely no explanation for that, but she kisses Jesse Eisenberg's character and then she's like, we have to go <laughs> to her sister. We have to flee here into the world of zombies. That would be better than being here and committing to a person. And it's just <laughs> even get in the movie and you're like, yeah, these guys like this, like this type of story is so like you just make up this type of woman in your head because this is what girls tell you that they just can't be with you. They can't be in a relationship right now because you're fucking annoying. <laughs> and they don't want to say that to your face. Jesse Eisenberg. Jesse Eisenberg, you are annoying. You never, Emma Stone should have gone for Woody Harrelson's character in this movie. He's way cooler and funnier. <laughs> Was it like so, Tallahassee? Wait, which one's Tallahassee? I don't remember. One of them is Wichita. Yeah, I can't remember who's who. Oh. Um, I also Tallahassee is Woody Harrelson. Wichita <laughs> is Emma Stone. Columbus is, is Jesse yes. Eisenberg, and Little yes. Rock is Abigail yes. Breslin. 
Um, and Bill Murray is himself. Yeah, Bill Murray's <laughs> fantastic. Uh, that was such a highlight for me. Woody Harrelson is also great in this movie. He's so funny. Uh, and I just like love him in general. Um, but this movie also does this that trope that I've talked about that hating before. It only kind of does it, but it's like scary middle-aged man has weird bond with teenage girl. I hate that. They kind of do it in this one. It's not nearly as bad or unsettling as it has been in other movies, but still, I just don't like it when they do that. Okay. Uh, there was one specific one that you talked about in reference to this. Do you remember what it was? Because I can't off um, the top of my head. I know we talked about it when we watched Gray Man. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that one. And they, we also talked about it in The Nice Guys, but I actually like oh, it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I also remember feeling this way when I saw the newer Godzilla movie. <laughs> Mm. They literally do that with Godzilla. <laughs> Godzilla has a weird relationship with a young girl. <laughs> I hate that. Or not Godzilla, sorry, King Kong. Um, <laughs> same thing. <laughs> not the same thing. <laughs> so anyway, I'm sorry to Paul. It, should he ever watch this? Um, I'm sorry I didn't like this one. I understand why it was so popular at the time. I really do. I understand the zombie craze that happened in like the <laughs> early 2010s or the late 2000s. Uh, it just makes a lot of sense. Like looking back on it now, it's kind of funny how much stuff was like zombie and survival oriented. But now with this like 10 years later, I guess 15 years later, it's kind of like, yeah, that, with that wisdom. just checks out. With yeah. wisdom and history on your side. Yeah. <laughs> the values of the culture at the time. It makes mm-hmm. sense that we were really into this type of type of thing. Um, but yeah, I just wish that these movies with these this like self-insert, uh, insufferable male character romance like wouldn't happen. It really irritates me. That's kind of crazy. I feel like that's that's like <laughs> that's like I feel like that's a lot of Jesse Eisenberg's roles i know i know (laughs) just what he does i do not like jesse eisenberg also to be honest with you he just irks me are you on team michael Sarah? if you had to compare the two oh yeah by a lot 100 percent. yeah i think michael Sarah is hilarious i actually i'm glad you brought this up i was watching (laughs) one of those videos the other day where um I can't remember who does them on YouTube, but they get like a famous person in and then the famous person walks through their most iconic roles, you know? Okay. And I was like, Michael Sarah just did one of those, like right when Barbie came out and I watched it and I realized watching that movie, like just how many of my absolute favorite movies and shows and stuff he has been in. Like Juno is a, an, I love Juno. And Arrested Development is the greatest show ever made. Yeah. And he is <laughs> essential to that show. Um, I think that he is so funny. He has a humor and a humility that Jesse Eisenberg could never achieve. Definitely. <laughs> also a big Michael Sarah fan. But I also really do like Zombie Lamp. I think it's fun. Yeah. I don't I mean, think I think with something that's like very like genre like that, I overlook a lot of the cliches with with the sure. romance and stuff. Yeah, um, like I prioritize I, it less, I guess, when when the story is not really taking it's taking that as seriously. 
I, yeah, totally get that. I don't want to be just like a hater on zombie. Land. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get it. I really do see the appeal. Especially when a family friend wrote it. I know. I'm sorry, Paul. <laughs> I really am. A, a quick uh, search indicates that he's Canadian. Yeah, my dad and his brothers went to high school in Canada. I did not know that. Yeah, that's where my uncle Matt met. Oh, in high school cool. <laughs> in Toronto. The more you know, I had no idea. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, my dad like has dual citizenship. <laughs> so near Canada. Really? I did not know that either. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> you learn something new every day. Yeah. Uh yeah, so that's what we read and watched in the month of October. It was a busy month. It was. We, we got a lot of a lot of uh discussion out of that i was like i think that was a pretty good episode i think so too it was really fun <laughs> i gotta admit <laughs> uh okay so next week should be book club if that still works yeah sounds good Twenty thousand leagues under the old sea yeah we're going deeper <laughs> <laughs> incredible <laughs> um so next monday is a big day for you so i don't think we'll be able to record then Oh, yeah, I kind of forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> a really big day for me. Well, my uh, my presentation is from 10 to 11 a.m., so oh. I will be for sure by one. Yeah. I might be in tears, depending on how it goes. <laughs> it went well. I'll be in a really good mood. <laughs> Hell, yeah. I'm down to shoot for that, and then we can hear okay, all about cool. it. Yeah. yeah, that sounds great. Cool. Yeah, let, let's let's shoot for that. Check on Aubrey's availability and... Uh, and uh see how it goes yeah oh sounds good um and then after that for the rest of november it's noir vember i have a couple of uh pictures that i've been trying to that i've been that i've been looking through based on like every year it seems like criterion puts a program of stuff and uh, there's some that i'm interested in watching i have I have some ideas for the rest of november but i want to see some some noirs i i, I really I want to find a classic noir that you really like because we didn't quite get there last year. I loved Chinatown. Is we that got not to a Chinatown. Class? No, it's definitely a neo noir. The, the the noir period kind of stems from like forty to fifty nine. I guess is a rough okay. kind of thing. Yeah, I would also love to find my favorite classic noir. Um, so I definitely want to watch either double and one of Billy Wilder's either double indemnity or sunset Boulevard, even though I've okay. seen those both multiple times. So maybe we can work on a challenge week. Okay. Of some I, sort. Remember, I, don't know. I remember last November, I almost watched double in, indemnity mm. <laughs> um, because you spoke so highly of it. And yeah. I remember, the way that you described it like made it sound like something that I specifically would really like. So I would love to watch that one. Okay. All right. I'll, uh, we'll, we'll continue to brainstorm on that. And uh, we do have a week to figure it out and then uh, decide, decide after we, we sail this, the seven seas or whatever it may be. <laughs> um, yeah. Sounds good. Uh, which means that all that is left to do for this week is to recommend an album. Do you have an album to recommend? Yes, I'm going to recommend A Hard Day's Night by The Beatles. Um, Incredible. <laughs> you're so welcome <laughs> for introducing you to A Hard Day's Night by The Beatles. Um, well, I've, I, never, I've never heard of this album. Please tell, <laughs> tell us all about it. <laughs> um, 
I have been listening basically to only the Beatles ever since uh, Now and Then came out, which in case you haven't heard about Now and Then, it's like <laughs> the last ever new Beatles song. The Beatles uh, dropped the new single. That's crazy. <laughs> um, it It's like a, a an older song, I guess, that John Lennon wrote and then that they were able to have like all four Beatles kind of over the course of time, like contributed to and now the song was just like reworked and put out and the music video for it like actually made me cry uh all for it have you seen it i haven't seen the music video actually i'm realizing oh now God. i watched the mini doc about the kind of making oh of cool it, cool uh, I which i would that. like recommend to everyone because i think it it really tells the story in an interesting i would way. love to watch that yeah. um yeah, the music video is so sweet. Uh, you j- they have like clips of that they pulled together of like all four of them from just different periods of time, and it's like oh. it's like modern Paul and Ringo um, with older clips of John and George like in the room with them, and it's oh. it's just really cute. Um, they did a great job with it. Anyway, so because of that, that coming out, I've just been in like a huge Beatles kick for the last week, and I have I like many people I think don't have like a permanent favorite Beatles song because they have so much incredible music. So I my top three favorites, favorite Beatles songs right now, one is from Abbey Road and one is from the White Album. I didn't want to recommend either of those. One of them is from A Hard Day's Night, which like as far as a Beatles album can go, maybe this is one that you don't listen to quite as much as the White uh-huh. Album or Abbey Road. I don't know. But <laughs> I love this album. I love the Beatles. My, one of my top three favorite songs right now is And I Love Her, which is on Hard Day's nice. Day. And it's fantastic. Incredible. <laughs> I'm going to go really out of left field for my album this week. Uh, which is one that I actually haven't listened to all the way through. I'm going to be completely <laughs> honest. Basically... Uh, let's get the anecdote in here. So I follow this account called on Instagram called Depths of Wikipedia. That sounds interesting. Which is just random. Um, I don't know, just like random Wikipedia pages they, that are kind of funny that they just post about. But it was from this account that I learned of the existence of, of a genre called Umex. Okay. Which is basically um, in the Cold War era, Yugoslavia didn't import any movies from America. And this resulted in them importing a lot of Mexican movies. Mm. And this caused a movement, uh, a movement, I don't know, like, but uh, an interest in uh, Mexican culture and especially music of like rancheros. And then that sort of thing. So there's a distinct genre of Yugoslavian Mexican music, U- Umex, <laughs> um, which is like stylized in like mariachi, rancheros kind of stuff, but just like from Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my album for this week is called 101 Mexicanska which is 101 different Umex songs uh, from different artists. It's a big old compilation album. That's fun. Uh, Yeah, which I, it's like four and a half hours long. I haven't listened to all of it, but I've listened to a few songs and I think it's it's probably a pretty good starting point to to delve into this genre, but I've listened to a bit and I'm curious to hear more. Nice. 
so yeah, that's that's my album for this week. I th- I, re- I uh, encourage all the listeners to to delve into this one a little bit too. Um, into Umex music, so I just thought that was too too much of an oddity to uh, not investigate. I guess I would say. <laughs> nice. So there you have it. Uh, that's my album for the week. Very fun pick. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, cool. So that is our October wrap up. Um, I think over the years, October has been consistently one of our hardest months, like months where we've gone the hardest on uh, wrap ups. I think consistently one of the longer episodes of the year is our October wrap up. Yeah. Uh, that's that's kind of interesting. I wonder why that is. I don't know. I might I might have to double check on this one, but yeah. I I think it just kind of over the like I think that's something I've definitely noticed. But the yeah, it's so funny because October always feels like one of my hardest like school months. It's mm. kind of I would think that I would like read and watch less, but mm. I don't know. Maybe the discussion is just better. Yeah, yeah, we watch good stuff. October mm. just brings really good stuff. Our way because we're witches. The juicy content. Veil is the thinnest. (laughs) Manifesting our perfect movies. Incredible. If I'm (laughs) if I am uh, able to listen to the radio show on next Sunday night, I uh, I better hear one at least one of the songs that I sent you. Well, (laughs) don't you worry. Do we have a question for the uh, mailbag for this week? I still want to hear about the the um, remakes. Yeah, I'm- since you bozos. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've discussed more what it takes to be yeah. a good remakeable movie, can you yeah. please contribute to the conversation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let, let's run that one back again. <laughs> I, I am I am really curious about what you guys have to say about it. So uh, let us know, please. Uh, the mailbag will be in this episode description and uh, all the recent episode descriptions really in addition to everywhere that we have a website listed for the pod right now goes to the mailbag so uh let us know what the, your dream remake is or like your favorite remake yes please because uh, we'd love to hear about it and uh, maybe learn about something that we have never heard of or have not yet seen Sounds good. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Uh, so that's all for us from this week. Um, let us know in the mailbag. And we will be back next time around with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Woohoo! Which I'm really uh, excited to talk about. Yeah, I am too. Uh, cool. Sounds good. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening, one and all. And uh, do great things this week. We both believe in you. (laughs) We always do. Always. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. Thank you. Bye now.